0: what up what up you're listening to the 2bd podcast with rt2 i got a very special conversation coming up so uh stay tuned and as always what comes next is to be determined right, welcome back once again this is the to be determined podcast with your host as always rt2 and um, as you can see in the studio it's just me once again, um, you know, just such is life that. All right, welcome back once again to the To Be Determined podcast with your host as always, RT2. As you can see, it's just myself today in the studio. Um, kind of wanted to do another solo episode. Um, so, over the past couple of weeks and whatnot, You know, my mind's just been on a bunch of different things. You know, just as is life, um, I was always told you always learn something new every day or you learn something new every day. Um, And that's really been resonating with me as of recent. Um, So I wanted to share some of those things, a little bit of myths, a little bit of facts, a little bit of stuff that I didn't realize or I didn't know or I didn't until I did know. And I learned that new thing for the day. Um so this is just a bunch of random stuff that's been on my mind. It's it's very topical, it's very um relevant to to be determined as always because it's things that have been determined. I don't that didn't really. Okay. Um so without further ado, let's get started. And the first thing that I came across which actually kind of blew my mind. I won't say blew my mind because you kind of felt it if anyone who if anyone has played sports their entire lives um, or even not even their entire lives just if you've played on a sports team before you've had to have encountered that one coach or maybe it was all your coaches that just when everybody's tired when everybody's gassed, when everybody's like I'm done with this that coach is like nah you're not done with this we got another lap we got another this we got another that everybody's huffing and puffing puffing passing out falling over and stuff and whatnot and he's like stand up don't put your hands on your knees there's no air down there all that types of right right so that's always been the worst that's always been the worst feeling um as an athlete um when you're trying to rest and recover, and your coach is like no put your hands above your head that's that's where all the air is that's how it'll help you breathe actually come to find out all these years later where it's not even relevant and i can't i can't bring this to my coaches and be like get out of here um that is actually not the case according to a 2019 study by the translational journal of american college sports medicine that is a mouthful The hands-on-your-head posture of when you are tired and healing over, when you put your hands over your head to breathe like they tell you to, um, actually flares your ribcage upwards and extends your back and closes your posterior ribcage so that you cannot expand while you inhale. And they actually determined with this 2019 study that the hands-on-knees position when you are bent over actually results in a faster decrease in heart rate compared to that of when your hands are above your head. So it's actually easier for you to recover and get more air when you are, when you actually do have your hands on your knees compared to over your head. And that is something that, you know, maybe if I would have known that and maybe if I didn't listen to my coaches, you know, could have took me farther in some games. I wouldn't have got as gas in some games. I'm sure, you know, if some of our coaches didn't just decide that, we're going to use this tactic just to determine how tired you are and fuck science and all of that. Um, We would actually produce better results on the field when it came to things like this, but you know, it's, it's neither here nor there, but I'm telling you that. So you can either take that information and tell it to your little brother, your little sister, or your child when they get on the sports field and they can snap back at their coach and their coach can pull them aside in the locker room and say, Hey, why are you talking back to me? And then they'll say, Hey, cause you're wrong. Cause there's actually this 2019 study that says you're wrong. And they'll be like, Oh really? Get off, get out of my office. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that's, that's one of the things it's like, you're not even surprised. Um, because, you know, coaches and stuff like that, but it's like, damn, I knew I was right, but I'm validated all this time after the fact and it doesn't even matter anymore. So that was that was number 1. We'll call that we'll call that a myth busted, a busted myth. A busted sports myth. The more you know. Um another thing that's been on my mind, it's been on a lot of people's minds because we need it to survive is water. Now, in my thinking of water and and inquiring about water, I, I started to do some some research into, into different waters. And a lot of that research actually, although it started out doing research into a bunch of different waters, it led to just one water um, almost across the board for the most part. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's that um, the water brands that we have, um a lot of them are the same brand it's it's one brand that owns this brand that owns this brand that owns this brand that owns this brand and all these different brands that they sell in different markets across country it's different products but it's the same thing um and in this case i'm talking about nestle water um and almost the monopoly that they have really in certain regions of this country now nestle obviously they make a bunch of other products but one of their main products being nestle water nestle pure life whatever it may be but that is that is the water that they sell under their name but they also own different water brands across the country um and if you weren't aware between nestle water pure life arrowhead water what else do i have perrier poland springs s pellegrino deer park zephyr hills ice mountain nestle splash ready refresh and those are just the ones that um i recognize off the top of my head there's about 20 or so other water brands that they actually also um own also also control and so when I say they have a monopoly on water, obviously they don't own every single water brand in the country. But throughout the ones that I just list listed, you have to realize that you know it may not seem like a big deal. Um, wherever you may be listening from, there may be an abundance of choices of water, but that's not the case nationally. In areas that experience water crisis crises, or areas that are lacking of all of these brands, and there may not be all 40 of these brands that I listed or all X amount of brands that I listed. There may just be two different sources that they can get stuff from. Um, And in those cases, Nestle capitalizes off of, essentially, residents need to live because they need water. Um, And Nestle, for the most part, they do a lot of their bottling of these products out of Michigan. And um, in Michigan, which is the 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 springs that they bottle their water from, which is I um, can't remember the name of the town, but it's it's a town in Michigan, and it's about two hours away from Flint, Michigan. And we all know Flint um, has been in the headlines throughout the past couple of years, throughout the past several years, actually because of the water crisis that they've experienced due to mismanagement and all of that um, in regards to the infrastructure. But through all of this time, just two hours away, Nestle has just been pumping millions and millions of gallons of water and bottling it and paying just $200 a year um, to bottle all this water, this fresh water from these springs um, and sell it on the market. Meanwhile, people two hours away in Flint are having to pay um, these city fees for this water that they can't even use, they can't even drink, they can't even cook with, all that types of stuff. A lot of them, obviously, their water bills exceed that um, of $200, but this giant, multi-huge corporation um, only has to pay $200 a year to bottle water and take that from the infrastructure and take that from, and take that resource from the people and profit off of it. And as recently as 2017, Nestle even applied for a permit to increase the amount of water that they've been pumping from these springs um, up to 200 plus millions of gallons of water um, at no further cost to them. So just the $200. And it's just, I, I kinda, after that, I found out that like other brands also have similar deals with s- state governments and local governments where like stuff like Pepsi and Coke with their brands, Dasani and Aquafina, um, and other places have struck similar deals where they can just pay X amount of money, which is, when you were talking about $200, it's a minuscule amount of money for billion dollar corporations, they can pay that much money and just bottle and profit completely off of that. Meanwhile, um, with the case of Nestle, residents just a couple hours away are are dying, essentially dying for this resource. Um, and local citizens can't just go to the spring and just say, hey, let me just continue to bottle this up because then they'll get arrested. And But when you're a water bottle company, why not? So yeah, that was that's not a myth. That's a fact. So the first one we started off with a, a debunked myth, and now we're at a a fact of a facto. All right, and I have one more announcement for you all. So I recently started a Patreon page for this podcast. Um, now, for those of you who are not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that allows independent creators, anyone who has, a, say, a podcast music, any sort of projects, documentaries that they have that they want to put out. Um, it allows you to have different levels of supporters of of your work, i.e. patrons that can pay different tiered level memberships in order to get access to some of your content. Um, now, obviously, has how things are with the 2BD podcast, everything is free and available to everyone and that I don't plan on changing that. Either. But as with The way that things are, you know, anything that you put time and effort into, you'd like to be able to recoup some of that time and effort in ways that you can then put more back into it. So I started the Patreon page for those of you who like what you're getting from 2BD and want to support the podcast in that way. Um, Once I started doing all this, I had always thought of ways in which that I could continue to pour more and more of my time and effort into this. And this is one of the ways that I came up with with that being said thank you as always for listening and uh let's get back to the show and to check out more and support all that is to be determined you can go to patreon.com slash 2bd simple as that all right so we started out with number one myth number one there's no air down there remember that next time your coach is yelling at you um and then we also have the the uh the little factor tidbit of nestle's water conglomerate in the states um and now we are on to Seneca Village and if you have not heard of Seneca Village if you do not know what Seneca Village is that is quite all right because a lot of people do not know but Seneca Village at one point was a a thriving um, middle-class community and neighborhood in, uh, New York. It was predominantly black, but it was also, um, at the time becoming more integrated with the immigrant population that was growing in the area. And if you're wondering what happened to this thriving middle-class neighborhood, um, you can figure that out just by going to New York and, um, heading uptown towards, um, Central Park because where Central Park is now located today is actually the area in which Seneca Village occupied, um, previously. Previously. Now, um, around the early 1800s up to, like, the 1850s or so, um, as Black- new yorkers began to build communities in new york um in new york city specifically they they were essentially kind of pushed out of lower manhattan lower manhattan as time developed became a a wealthy upper class white um um urban city landscape and you know the poor the poor free black inhabitants um over time were pushed out of that area and um they began to build communities up further north um, towards the area, which is now Central Park. But at the time, um, it was it was a heavily forested and wooded area that they began to build these neighborhoods into, which became at the time um, Seneca Village. And so, over time, as these neighborhoods started to thrive, um, the the wealthy white inhabitants of Lower Manhattan. You know, they started to get inspiration from other cities um, in the world, um, other European cities that many of them began to visit and come across and stuff. And a big thing that was occurring with a lot of these cities is they all had some sort of public space, public space, be it a park or something, some sort of amenity where people could just gather and... Um, have events in such such a way like that and so there was there was a lot of call from the wealthy elites at the time to say hey we need something like this like all these other cities have Um, why don't we have that here in New York a large park like that and we can put it in this area Um, and so after calls like that from the wealthy inhabitants of Lower Manhattan, that's that's when the city began to draw this up, draw this plan up, and of course, the spot that they chose was where all the where all the black inhabitants were at the time um, in Seneca Village, and so essentially, just through eminent domain, the city, New York City, just decided, hey, this is this is ours now. We're gonna take these neighborhoods. We're gonna destroy these houses and. You guys got to get up and get the fuck out of here. And a big thing at the time that kind of played into why this was essentially non-controversy. I mean, other than the time that it was in the States um, with segregation and racism was um, the media. Um, The media played a, a very big role during this time. Um, in downplaying the significance of Seneca Village and downplaying the significance of the families and the neighborhoods that were living in these areas. Um, a key component um, during the time, um, a lot of the newspapers, and there's even a quote, um, an excerpt from a New York Times newspaper at the time which you know, described... T- the area around Seneca Village as nigger village and the areas were described as like slums where criminal activity just piled up and it was just you know the the ways that it was characterized it was characterized in such a way that it was easy for those without the information or without the wherewithal to actually look into what was going on could just say hey there's not. They're not displacing any sort of prosperous neighborhood. They're not displacing any sort of people that aren't desirables, that aren't um, undesirables, that aren't criminals, that don't deserve this. So why don't we just destroy whatever this is and have this new Grandstand Park in New York? And that's how we've gotten to Central Park today. And, of course, none of that is taught. None of that is told. No one knows this unless you make it so you have to know this i can't even recall in which i came across this information other than probably just me going down an internet rabbit hole um so yeah that's that's your that's your racism um in the that's your american history racism update um for for this episode And that will bring us to the fourth and final, uh, did you know of this To Be Determined episode, which is the national parks, the national parks in the United States and why I will not be attending them anytime soon. Um, As recently as two to three months ago, during this year, there was a big, there's a big trend on TikTok. There's a bunch of people making TikToks, um, about the mysterious disappearances of, of people who have gone missing in national parks, national parks in the States, like that of, um, like that of, um, Yosemite or that of the Smoky Mountains, um, those types of open space, national parks in the States, and, um, people were pointing to you know feral cannibal people um living in these parks saying that you know the national park service is covering this up they don't they don't um they don't report the numbers of the people that go missing in these parks there's been x amount of people missing every year that are um that we have no idea what happens to them and all the rumors were pointing to you know, cannibal man eating people that live in the forests and that absolutely freaked me the fuck out. Mind you, I'm not even on TikTok, but my sister brought it to my attention and I I was a little shaken up by that. Um, but since then, um, you know, that trend has sorta of died down. Um and since then other creators have come out and said, you know, these these rumors are unsubstantiated and a lot of these Disappearances can be chalked up to something else other than people just deciding that there are cannibals in the forests. And um, a lot of other users were quick to point out, you know, the offensive nature of pointing to, you know, mountain men or people that live off the land in these areas, um, calling them cannibals and stuff like that, because there's actually um, there's there's actually um rationales and reasons as to why people may live in these remote areas um whether they're disenfranchised or poor and you know not to stereotype these people in certain ways but 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 again what all of this new information did for me is it made me look more into these disappearances and just the the actual stuff that goes on in national parks. And I was genuinely just like alarmed because since the National Park Service was created in um, 1916, there have been about 1600 cases of missing people that have never been um, solved. So they've never been found, the remains have never been found, and it's just been chalked up to who knows. Um, And the amount of national parks, the amount of space that they actually cover in the United States is about 3.4% of the total land of the United States. So the national parks are huge. Um, There's a lot of space and a lot of land and a lot of areas for people to go off the beaten path, go off the trails and, you know, never be seen again. Um, obviously in the entire, the entirety of the National Park Service being around, which from 1916 and now, more than a little over hundred years, um, 1600 people doesn't sound like a lot, but it's still 1600 people that they have no idea what actually happened to them. Um, and since 2010, um, 166 deaths, and these are actually confirmed numbers, so this does not count, this is not counted within 1600, but 166 deaths of people where they found the remains have just gone completely unexplained um, with an undetermined cause of death. Um, and so through the, through the, people that visit these parks each year there's always a certain amount of people that visit and will succumb to um you know the the deaths that you can expect stuff like falling falling from heights falling from rocks um while visiting these parks because people are going hiking falling drowning um stuff like that there's also you know um animal attacks you're in the wilderness stuff like that all that types of stuff but just like i don't know i think it was just just the the unknown just thinking that like 1600 people and people still continually go missing to this day um in a time where it's just like you can be tracked stalked and found at the drop of a hat with your smartphone device to think that um there's still limits to that there's still like there's still limits to it and there's still to the point where it's like it's it's not a guarantee it was just like it was a scary thing to think like oh so if I ever take a trip to a national park um big big group a big group will be going it won't be it won't be just me, it won't be just me and someone else, it won't be just me and someone else and someone else, it'll be me, someone else, someone else, someone else, and 13 other people, so it'll be a large group, but um, yeah, that's a little bit of what I've been thinking about these past couple of days, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of, if you didn't know, now you know. Um, but yeah, the last thing I kinda wanted to share with you all was um recently I took a trip down to South Carolina with my older sister. And um, you know, it was it was a bit of an experience. Um, we had some fun, had some good food, saw some cool things, but um, you know, one of the things that I've been doing recently in my life, um, is kind of evaluating where where I want to be and not necessarily where I want to be in the terms of career wise where I want to be in the terms of what type of person I want to be but literally like the physical location of where um I want to be um this is a big country this is a big world even depending on if you want to take your talents elsewhere and go somewhere else but um there's there's a lot of places in this in this life you are given a lot of choices one of those choices is whether you want to continue on um with the cards you were dealt and where you where you lay your head at night where you call home um I'll say that um, and so I've thought a lot about you know the big cities or the places that I want to get in this life. And so as I'm crossing certain places off this list, and um, whether they fit into what I like or what I don't like, and stuff like that, you know, you got to keep your options open. So, in terms of a place like Charleston, South Carolina, which is it's it's a major it's a major city in the South. It's a historic city in the South. Um, I was excited for this trip um, in those aspects. But over time in the trip, you know, and I've I've dealt with this. Um, I don't even know how to describe it, but like it's it's sort of like a feeling. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was a kid, when I was younger, visiting family that I have in Tennessee. I spent a lot of summers down there. Um, and also just through family reunions and stuff because my family comes out of comes out of the south um, out of a lot of like the Virginia area is where a lot of my family can draw our roots back to but generally throughout the times that I've spent in these southern areas whether it be Tennessee, Virginia, North, South Carolina, Georgia, all of these areas it's There's always a sort of feeling that you get, um, that it's just different compared to where you come from, and it's, it's something that always hangs over your head, you know, when you talk about race, when you talk about the, the feelings, the eyes that are on you in a room, the this, that, or the third, um... It's a, it's a little different. I mean, it's always, it's ever-present. It's always there no matter where you are. But it feels, there's, the way that it, you feel it on you is different in different places. Um, All that to say, in a place like Charleston, South Carolina, with so much of um its history being tied into that, being tied into it being a slave state, being, tied into it being a place where there's plantations where slave auctions were held where the there i believe there's a point in south carolina in which the majority of african-american descendants in the states can actually trace their lineage back to because there were so many um during the transatlantic slave trade there were so many african slaves that are that were brought through this point in Charleston, South Carolina before they were dispersed throughout the rest of the colonies. Um, So the majority of us can actually trace our roots back um, to this point. Um, But all that being said, because there's so much of this history that's rooted in that city, it's just like, I couldn't even imagine if I wanted to grow up settle and live there have a family there and go and essentially live my life in a place like that um and again this is no disrespect to any of the the areas um like that but just like going to when we went through museums when we went through historic houses when we just walk the streets there's so much history um in this city Um, And I say history because that's what it is, whether it's, it's not to say like, there's so much, oh, this is a city about slavery. This is a city that prides itself on um, the American Civil War and the Southern pride and all that. And it's like, that's not even necessarily what it is. It's just because that is what it was rooted in. That is what it was born out of. That is um charleston was a city that was destroyed by this american civil war because all of these remnants are still there it's just like there's there's a feeling that you get in this area that is just like it's it's unsettling it's unsettling i would say um when we went on the trip we were just um, trying to think of different things that we wanted to do, different places that we wanted to go, and it's it's just like all the options that we were presented, um, it's like no matter what you wanted to do, that's something that you cannot forget. Um, whether it be, you know, the big attractions in the area being slave plantations, which I don't necessarily have reservations about visiting a plantation from a historical point of view but you know through the thousands of plantations that operated in this country um during the area during the era of slavery once slavery was outlawed and ended um those plantations weren't usurped by the government they weren't turned into museums um A lot of these plantations are still owned and operated by the same families that owned and operated them with their slaves during the 1800s 1700s and all those times they still have that land they still have these plantations they still make money off of visitors they still charge admission and still so it's like for me to now as a descendant of slavery say oh let me go to this plantation and learn about this history and pay 45 dollars or x amount of dollars to get into this plantation to this white formerly slave owning family that's now still making money off of my existence just like they made money off of my ancestors that's fucked um and through things like that even stuff like and me and my sister were joking the first night we were there about going on a um like a ghost tour in the area and you know I'm kind of a chicken so I don't know if we actually would have went on the ghost tour but just like even stuff like that in the back of my mind you think a regular ghost tour it's like ooh, we get to hear these scary stories about what happened to this person this ghost person and all that type of stuff and in the back of my mind it's just like ooh, we're in Charleston in South Carolina all these ghosts are from the 1700s, 1800s, these are racist ghosts, these aren't even regular ghosts that I gotta deal with, these are like, southern confederate ghosts, um, and just even the little bit of stuff like that, I can't even, like, there's, it's like, there's so, there's so much of that, that just follows me, and it may just be me that follows me in the back of my mind, being in an area like that, but it's just like, I can spend time for vacation to be there, but I couldn't imagine growing up and what sort of perspective I may have, how that would affect my upbringing, being in an area like that, where it's like you go down the streets, you walk down the streets and you say, hey, that was was a house that owned all these slaves or this house or this park or this tree, this is where they used to hang black people or this used to be an old clan meeting house and it's just like this is stuff that's just built into the infrastructure that is um it's very present it's very in your face it's very just it is what it is of the area um and and I don't know how to I wouldn't know how to reconcile with a lot of that and it made me think about you know how much more of that exists across these continental United States how much how much how much more of our infrastructure is like that and how much more of us um there are and when I say of us of black people there are that are living in these areas that are living in these day-to-days that deal with this that grow up with this and it's just experience it. it is experience it as it is um, and have that it is what it is type of understanding of it Um, but um, yeah I guess you gotta what what more can you do about it gotta gotta come to grips with it I don't know but um, that about wraps up another episode of the the To Be Determined podcast. Um, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you. And when I say thank you, I really mean it because it's it means a lot to everyone that tunes in. It means a lot to everyone that gives feedback that tells me stuff that they'd be interested in hearing and all that, and um, keep it coming at me because um, this podcast is a podcast as much as it is a podcast for me to vent and talk and outlet um it's a podcast for for you all everyone listening to um to learn um and be on this journey with me so i appreciate it all and um as always what comes next is to be determined peace